and we are live. Welcome back to the Victory Degree Podcast. Uh, have a very special guest here today, Jamie Beckler. Jamie, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate it, Nick. Thanks for having me. I, I like what you're doing here with this podcast. You've had some really good guests. Yeah, I'm trying. Uh, you know, I think we'll get into a lot of the topics that, um, and a lot of the principles that I try to emulate as I go, you know, on this journey, uh, this podcasting journey, which certainly isn't easy. But I think if I stick with it, hopefully it'll pay off in the long run. So. Uh, excited to talk through some of those topics uh, here with you today. Jamie, I figured a good place for us to start uh, right off the bat. Um, your dad was a firefighter for 30 years. Your mom was a teacher for 40, uh, both extremely respectable careers. And the amount of time that they were in each career is also extremely respectable. Growing up, you're a camp counselor, a lifeguard, and you worked <laughs> in the maintenance department at your local at, at a local college. So I'm curious, coming from that background, coming from your childhood, how, I mean, how did it lead to what you're doing here today and everything that you have going on? Well, good job on the research. Cause that's probably the first time I've ever been asked those, those, uh, or those things have been brought up on a podcast before. So I appreciate that. But, you know, I, I do think a, a lot of our background and culture and, uh, you know, culture in terms of the environment, the surroundings, the people we interact with, I do think that that shapes us. You know, my, our, our podcast is called Success is a Choice. And I do believe that our choices dictate a lot of our future, but also the people that we're around, the, 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 the surroundings, the environment, we are somewhat of a product of that. Not like in the victim mentality, not like the, well, I can't do anything about my environment, but those things then give us examples. Those things make it harder or easier for us moving forward. And, and in my case, uh, I didn't grow up rich. I didn't grow up with, you know, everything being handed to me. I grew up with a mom who was the, the head of the, 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 the union, the teacher union. So I always saw her fighting for everybody else. She was always had this big heart. She was always putting herself out there to, to help all the other teachers get more in their contracts or, or that kind of stuff, you know, teachers versus administrators type stuff. I would see the way that she would talk to parents when they would call her, you know, way back in the day. I would see, you know, how she really didn't take her summers off. She was still always doing uh, planning and she was she was trying to, you know, do extra stuff to, to help the students, maybe even that were going to be coming into her fourth grade class that next year. My dad, my dad was so uneducated. Like he, he, you know, his, his, one of his teachers in high school once said, uh, Frank, didn't you have a twin sister that already graduated? So, you know, he was not very good in school and it would be later on when he was in his sixties, uh, I think 62 years old where he went back and got an associate's degree. You know, he was one of these guys that wasn't educated, but was one of the smartest people I ever knew. People respected him. He was so smart. He was a, he was a fire captain. Um, he was a local politician, uh, and he. And this is back in the days. It didn't matter if he had an R or a D next to his name. Everybody voted for him because they knew he was going to be honest and and trustworthy. They, he might not do what they wanted him to do, but he was going to do good things for people. Um, you know, and then he he was a truck driver, and and eventually he worked in a maintenance department. Like you said, I worked in a maintenance department on summer in summers at a college, and that's where, you know, that's how I got that job. Uh, you know, when I would come home from from college, being a college athlete, I would go work in the maintenance department with my dad. And he was so well respected because he worked his tail off and and he might not have been educated like the, the traditional sense. 
but he was so smart and he had a way with people. But the number one thing I took away from both of my parents was hard work, like nose to the grindstone, get things done and, and treat people right. And I know those two things are, are, are not the same, but treating people right, but also having a hard a work ethic of, of getting in there, doing hard work. And, and that kind of carried me into athletics it, as a, as a player, I was kind of a blue collar player. Uh, I certainly, you know, I drove my coaches nuts, like most of us do with our coaches. And, and I didn't always reach my potential, but I was fortunate enough to play some college basketball, some college football, and, uh, you know, go on to have a, a little bit of a career as a college basketball coach, high school athletic director. And now, you know, I'm doing leadership work with with sports teams all across the country at all different levels. And so, you know, I do look back on that, Nick. Great question. I do look back on that. And I'm like, all right, when things are going rough, when I, when I don't want to get out of bed in the morning or something like that, I think back to my mom and dad. And it's not like they, you know, were driving around in BMWs and, you know, they had this big... Uh, you know, uh, you know, they were just rolling in the cash and, you know, they didn't have to do anything they didn't want to do. No, they had to get up and they had people relying on them. So I did a terrible job of, uh, of introducing you. So let me let me rewind the tape and let me talk about some of the things that you've accomplished thus far. So you're an author of five books. You're a professional speaker. Uh, I watched a couple of your clips from your professional speaking. Um, there were two that stood out. So we'll get into those later. Um, you mentioned your podcast network success is a choice. Funny enough, you're not going to believe me, but on my phone, I don't know if the camera will pick this up. This is my background on my phone. Success oh, nice. is a choice. <laughs> um, Very cool. So, so that, that phrase means a lot to me, and I want to ask you about that later and what it means to you. Um, 20 years as a college basketball coach and high school athletic director, uh, you created the leadershipplaybook.com. Uh, basically, it's a, it's a membership service that helps athletic departments develop you know, better teammates, uh, more positive leaders, etc., uh, and then, like you kind of mentioned, you do a lot of work with high-level athletes, coaches, uh, helping them develop their expertise in leadership and culture and teamwork. Um, you talked about, I want to go back to what you said about your parents. Uh, you said, basically, they taught you how to work hard. You also mentioned this whole victim mentality of, well, it's somebody else's fault that I'm not successful, or it's the system, or the weather today is is cloudy, hence that's why I'm not <laughs> successful. Um, from your experience and, and everything that you've seen, why why do so many people gravitate towards that victimhood mentality versus the let me take things into my own hands and let me create this successful, you know, career or whatever you're pursuing? Well, it's the easier it's the easier route to take. It's it's easy, you know, and and none of us are immune to that. You know, if, if you get stopped by a police officer your first instinct is what excuse can I give or why did they stop me? There were other cars going the same speed limit or some even going faster. You know, that's our first instinct. Our first, if my wife, you know, accuses me of something, you know, or I, you know, is like, well, you didn't do the dishes, you know, on time or when you were supposed to, I'm naturally quickly trying to go through my Rolodex of excuses or why, as opposed to just being, you're right. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Because it's just easier to look for an excuse. And we also, as people, we want to look good. Like we want, uh, we, we don't want to be losers. And, and when you don't get something done or when you fall short of something, we can be perceived as a loser, uh, so to speak. And, and I'm not a psychologist, so there, it goes a lot deeper than I can give you an answer to. But, you know, I mentioned earlier that we are all 
products of an, our environment. I don't mean that in you get in a roller coaster, you strap on the harness and you're taken for a ride and there's nothing you can do. But sometimes your environment is going to make you tougher, is going to make you stronger, is going to make you better about stuff. Sometimes your environment, you're going to give into that environment. So if if you come from a rough area, you know, if if you come from a very poor area or a place where there's a lot of crime or a place where, you know what, it, it's okay not to go to school or it's okay to do this or that. And you are like, I want to take the easy way. Then you will have more opportunity to fall in line with everybody else. But if you're somebody that says, you know what, I know there's a better way or, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to try a little bit harder. And, and it's not always I understand I'm painting with a broad brush. I understand we can always give exceptions to everything out there. But in general, we may have to overcome a little bit more challenges than some other people. You know, I, I know you're a huge NBA fan. Well, the 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 NBA is littered with guys that were undersized and they still made it into the hall of fame. They, they became NBA all-stars or they were contributors on their team or people that came from schools that were lacrosse schools or were football schools and nobody paid attention to basketball, but all of a sudden they became uh, a basketball player or football. Uh, You know, right now you're wearing a San Francisco hat, but just down, you know, you know, just down the down the coast, a, a few hours in San Diego, they had a guy named Antonio Gates who became a Hall of Fame football player, but he never played college football. So there's some things sometimes, and I know we can point to exceptions, but there's some things sometimes that maybe get in our way of achieving goals or going where we think we should. But there's always some avenues or always some ways that maybe we can overcome the challenges not as quickly as we would like, and we may not get the full results that we would like. But there's always ways, you know, hey, I just don't have a car. I can't get to work. I don't have a car. I can't get to practice. I don't have this, this, and this. We all have reasons for not being able to do stuff, but excuses don't get us closer to our goals. What gets us closer to our goals is trying to figure out or asking somebody to help us with getting to those goals. Uh, you know, I've seen plenty of sports teams that that have early morning practices, especially football, like on a, on a Saturday morning after, you know, a late Friday night game. And maybe they have a bunch, they live in a poor town. Kids, kids, their parents are working. There's, they don't have a car. How are those kids going to get to practice? Well, the best coaches, the best leaders are figuring out ways to help those kids get to practice. But at the same way, the kids that have a little extra that say, you know what? this sucks, but I want to be the best that I can be. So I'm going to ask my friend, I'm not going to be too proud. I'm going to ask my friend if their parents will drive me to practice or or something. And I'm giving you some, some kind of weird examples in a way, but I do think, yes, we're a, a product of our, of our environments in that they can help make us stronger or we can give into some of that kind of stuff. But the victim mentality is, is real. We see that and, and it can be, you know, as great of an athlete as LeBron James is, the dude complains all the time. You know, he's never committed a foul in his life. Now, has that kept him from being one of the greatest players of all time? No, it hasn't. But has that maybe kept his focus, taken his focus away from in certain games where instead of winning 66 games, they could have won 68? And does that matter? Probably not. But maybe they get uh, maybe they get build more habits or maybe somebody on the bench is seeing the way he acts and and yeah he can get away with that but maybe the 12th man on the team 
can't get away with that. And so the 12th man on the team has permission to, to cry and complain to a referee or say this about a certain situation. LeBron has given them permission to do that, but that guy doesn't have the talent to overcome that. That's a silly example, but take that in life. In life, we say, all right, well, we see people on TV or we see our role models or we see people doing acting a certain way and maybe getting away with it. But I can't act that way and get away with it in my life or in my business or in my family because I don't have enough talent or I don't have the resources or the infrastructure in place. And so sometimes we see these people giving us permission to act a certain way, but that's not the right way to act. So I kind of went off on a tangent there. Um, I, I definitely don't like the NBA in terms of the way they complain about every single call. You know, and I love it when there's a call made and both guys are complaining. You know, you, 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 got, you got the offensive guy that got fouled. He's complaining because it, it, it doesn't count as a two-shot foul or something. You know, and you got the guy who committed the foul complaining because he didn't even think there was a foul called or a foul committed. So it's funny, NBA, you know, those games would be over a lot quicker if those guys would stop complaining. That's a that's a fair point. And and you are right. Sometimes it does take away from the game, right? I mean, if 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 everyone's complaining about every call, it's like, okay, well, then there is no right call. And 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 I think as as sports fans too, it's so easy to blame the refs to say, hey, the refs took this game away from us. And I've been there. We've all been there. But yep. at the end of the day, refs are humans, their jobs are insanely difficult. And I I listened to a podcast with uh I, Nick Curios was the guest. It was on the Jay Shetty podcast. And one thing that stuck out um or that stuck out from from what he said was he said for all the people who complain about me or who don't like me step a day into my shoes experience what i experience and then see if you would make the same comments about me and i think that's super important for all of us to take that away and say all right you know we're complaining about these people we're complaining about the refs let's let's try to do their job for a day like go try and referee a game a professional basketball game a professional football game Realize how difficult it is and then see if you have the same complaints that you would have about those same refs. Um, so I think it's just a great, a great way to look at life in general and about anybody that we seem to have a problem with. You know, one of the, the earliest quotes that I ever kind of learned or um, there were two quotes I learned early on. One was I remember I was in seventh grade and it was obstacles are what you see when you take your eyes off the goal. Now, mm. I, I started twisting that through the years and saying distractions are what you see when you take your eyes off the goal, you know, horse racing, you know, they have blinders on. So they're not looking over here to, you know, the ladies in the pretty hats and looking over here to like funnel cakes and corn dogs and stuff. <laughs> they want them focused on where they're supposed to go. And that's how we are oftentimes with, with, we get distracted by things that takes our eyes off the goal. And um, uh, the other quote was by a, a, an author, uh, Charles Swindoll. And he said, life is, is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. Now I'm not a math guy, you know, five out of four people are bad at math, but I like that percentage in terms of going through our daily walk, our daily life, thinking that, you know what, there's going to be a lot of good things and bad things that happen to us. We can't control those things necessarily, but we can control what happens to us. And so as an, as an NBA guy, and a lot of the people that listen to this are, are like the NBA or professional sports. You know, I had the, the opportunity a few years ago to work with the Toronto Raptors uh, it, uh, during uh, their offseason and uh, went out, did some leadership stuff with their team and coaches during some some mini camps that they had out in L.A. 
And there's this one day where we roll up to to this community college where we're going to go do a workout. You know, there's no media around. There's no nobody around. It's just we're going to be uh, the Raptors are going to be in this community college. And, and ironically, the Oklahoma City Thunder were also there. So so uh, both teams were in this community college. Nobody else around except those two teams. So we roll up in this parking garage. We get out and there's like no manager support staff necessarily. So there's there's this there's these two bags of like towels and basketballs and like water bottles and stuff just laying there. You know, uh, the, the, the coach that drove kind of just pulls them out, puts them on the, the floor there in that parking garage. And there's like seven NBA guys standing around these two bags. And it seemed like forever, but, but it's like, it was probably three, four or five seconds. But you can just see them doing the math in their head that if I just wait long enough, I don't have to carry a bag because there's more of us than there are bags. And all of a sudden, Fred Van Vliet comes up, picks up both bags, says, screw this. Let's go get better. And he starts walking to the gym and everybody else follows him. You see, that wasn't the time to start comparing resumes or who has more millions of dollars in their bank account or who should or shouldn't be carrying bags. I'm better than this. You know, this isn't my job. Fred Van Fleet, when it goes back to the distractions or what you see when you take your eyes off the goal, or even, you know, you life is 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. That was a situation where that was a distraction. That was something that didn't matter at that point. That was, uh, hey, we're here, I'm a millionaire, but I'm still going to have to carry a bag type thing. Well, how are you going to respond to that? And Fred Van Fleet, on that day at least, reminded those guys we're not here for anything else but to try to win a world championship. This is our goal today. There's not media around. There's not any of this this extra junk around. It's just us trying to get better today in July of, uh, I think at the time it was July of 2017, you know, so, so a few years ago. But our job here is to get better. How are we going to respond to, you know, hey, we've got bags to carry. You know, I'm an NBA guy, but I'm going to have to carry a bag. Fred Van Fleet picked up both of them and reminded those guys and, and a silly little story, but I think sometimes we get distracted by the refs. You know, we get distracted by, you know, how big or tall or cushy the chairs are on the sidelines or, you know, where, you know, in the NBA, where, where are my family going to sit with our comp tickets? Or, you know, it, we just get distracted by so many things that really take away from our goal. What's our goal and our distractions day to day, our distractions, you know, uh, and, and there's too many to list, but we take our eyes off of our goal when we're looking over here, when we're looking over there. And that could be anything in our daily walk. So, so we got to really, I fight daily. I fight. How can I not get distracted by, by things that don't matter as much? I think that example of uh, Fred Van Vliet is perfect because we just had Greg Coleman on the podcast, who was the first African-American punter in the NFL, played 11 seasons for the Minnesota Vikings, um, was amazing at what he did, amazing at his craft, but he faced a lot of disappointment in his life. I mean, a lot of racism, especially in back in the 70s and the 80s, unfortunately. Um, and he said something that stuck out to me, which was that leadership doesn't depend on your position in a company, on a team. So it was funny because he he always had that natural leadership tendencies, but people would look at him and say, you're just a punter. Like, what do you know? You know, what do you know about leadership? You just punt the ball. So I love that example of Fred Van Vliet that it doesn't matter if you're first on the team or last on the team. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you're playing 38 minutes a game or three minutes a game. Leadership is there for everyone. 
Well, and, and, and you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because at the time, you know, Fred Van Vliet is now, you know, he's known, uh, he, at one time he had the, the largest, uh, contract ever for an undrafted free agent. You know, he's a guy now that's, that's rich, that's getting paid tons of money at the time he was going into his second year. And during his rookie year, he was obviously undrafted, even though he was a great player at, at Wichita state, but he, his first year, he split that between the G league and the, the NBA, the Raptors team. And so he didn't necessarily have a spot absolutely secure. Now, now, and, and for the most part, he did, but he wasn't the Fred Van Vliet that he is now. He was still the bet on yourself, Fred Van Vliet. He was still the guy that was trying to prove he belongs anywhere. You know, uh, hey, I, and 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 Fred is a great example of somebody that didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He didn't grow up with, all right, I'm going to play on the best AAU teams where everything is handed to me, and I'm going, you know, everything in the world is handed to me, and I'm a future NBA guy. You know, he he had to fight and scrape and claw for a lot of stuff. And that's his mentality. And that's why he can be a guy that's maybe not as quick. You know, he's certainly not as quick as a guy his size should be. You know, you, you think of him in his size. He's undersized, but he's not like ultra quick. Uh, he He's not the highest jumper. You know, he's not the greatest athlete. So all these things, when you look at him, he probably shouldn't be in the NBA and he definitely shouldn't be getting rich. People shouldn't be, you know, clamoring over him as a free agent. And, you know, he signed with Houston, but he's not a guy you look at him, but he's a bet on yourself guy. He's a guy that, you know what, these things stink. This circumstances stink. You know, yeah, I deserve more, but you know what? I'm not going to cry about it. I'm just going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And it's going to make me you know, hardcore to the point that I, I'm going to pick up two bags if that's what it requires. I'm going to dive for that loose ball. You know what? If I have to sit on this bench, I'm still going to wave this towel and I'm still going to fist bump Kyle Lowry, even though he's taken all my minutes, you know, those kinds of things. I'm going to do what I need to do to, to help me and help our team as well. And Fred, you know, people ask me a lot of times, you know, who are some great leaders in the NBA? Fred is one of those guys that comes to mind right away. Um, you know, and, and nobody's perfect, especially at the pro level, because there is a lot of individualism at the pro level. But Fred is one of those guys that come to mind right away because he is a great teammate. Um, and, and you mentioned the punter talking about leadership's not always a position. And, and, and it's not. It's not always about your position status, your title, even though a guy like LeBron has more of an opportunity to be a leader because of his platform and because of his talent. But those guys on the bench, you know, you you watch, you know, I'm and I've I've worked a lot with coaches and and some players at the NBA level, so so I tend to stick with that when it comes to the pro level. But you watch a bench in an NBA game, and you can kind of tell. I hate to judge a book by its cover, but you can kind of tell the guys that are good teammates and the guys that are really just there for themselves. You know, do they even care when you know you've got. 12,000 people cheering when a basket is made, but is so-and-so on the bench who's wearing that uniform? Are they cheering? Oh, I got to save myself, man. It's an 82-game schedule. Well, no. I mean, be a teammate. you know. And so people like Fred, or you might not have that position, like the punter. You could be the starting punter, but nobody looks at the punter as being, oh, you're, the, you're so integral to the team. You're the leader of the team. But your fist bumps you're keeping someone focused on the bench might be able 
might be that little thing that that when that player then goes, not when you go back in the game, but when that other player goes back in the game, all of a sudden they're a little bit more focused. And that might be the difference in a two or three point game. And we've all seen a lot of close games in the NBA sometimes. Um, you know, those starters, when they come out and they're sitting on the bench, you know, you don't have to be rah-rah, pom-poms waving all the time. But how you're leading in terms of leading on the bench, leading in the locker room, leading on the flight, leading at a restaurant, leading in the bus or whatever, that can go a long way toward building your culture. And, and to me, the leadership aspect, leadership is making others better and making situations better. What's your influence like? And so you don't, you could be an injured player. You could be the 12th man on the team and you can make other people better and you can, you can make situations better. You talked about teammates and I immediately thought of um, uh, a scenario that played out earlier in the NFL season. And listen, I don't want to start any drama with, with this player or, or any Twitter beef. I love him. I think he's <laughs> immensely talented, but there was a scenario during the Steelers season where uh, Deontay Johnson scored a touchdown and George Pickens, another wide receiver on the team, the camera kind of panned over to him. He didn't seem super excited that his teammate scored, kind of just sat down, you know, looked down at the ground, seemed pretty disappointed, seemingly that he didn't score. Um, so it's it's interesting how moments like that, you know, just a few actions can can really tell the story. And to your point about how how teammates are reacting to the success of their own teammates or to the success of the team. It's situations like that where I think, oh man, like I don't, you know, is George Pickens a good teammate? Like, is he, you know, maybe he's having a rough day and, and that's why he's disappointed. I don't know. But in that scenario, it was like, and it was all over Twitter. It was all over the media. It's like, hey, what's wrong with George Pickens? Is he a good teammate? Does he care about the team? Um, so I love that example. And it's funny how moments like that stand out so much and people are so quick to latch on to the negativity. But there's countless examples every night of teammates clapping and, and cheering their teammates on. But that seemingly rarely gets displayed. That seemingly rarely gets applauded, right? It's almost like the negativity outweighs the positivity in those situations. Yeah, and I, I'm a big believer that if you're a great teammate, if you're unselfish, if, if you're trying to make others better and make situations better, uh, that that is going to make your culture better, which is going to make your team better, which ultimately, even at the highest level, the professional level, is going to make you individually better. You're going to be somebody that's going to be in demand. Um, David Ross was a catcher for the uh, for a number of teams, and, and he just actually uh, stopped being the manager of the Chicago Cubs. But David Ross was a guy who was known toward the end of his career as being a glue guy, you know, kind of a clubhouse guy. But he got paid a lot of money, and there was two uh, there were two straight free agent cycles where David Ross was one of the absolute highest in demand free agents, even though he had only hit you know a handful of home runs in his whole career. He was batting way closer to two hundred than he was three hundred in his career. Like he's a guy who stat wise would be like this guy should be playing you know beer league slow pitch softball. You know he's not a guy that should be a high demand free agent, but he was a high demand free agent. For two teams in a row, the Boston Red Sox and the Chicago Cubs, because they wanted to be the best that they could be. And they saw him as being a clubhouse guy, a glue guy that could be a leader, whether he was on the field or not. And two teams in a row paid him a lot of money to be a free agent. And both teams that first year won World Series with him being integral. And, and in fact, the Cubs, he had a storybook Hollywood type inning where he hit a home run to win the World Series. This is a guy that doesn't hit home runs and he hits a home run. So, and I know that's one example, 
But oftentimes, even at the pro level, if you can bring that extra intangible to your team, then all of a sudden your team might win two more games during the year, which might be the difference between home court or not home court. Or it might be the difference of just developing some momentum or some habits. Uh, You know, I I mentioned the Raptors earlier. To me, the Raptors were a a great example that doesn't get mentioned much, mainly because they're a, a Canadian team. Uh, but they were a team that most people don't realize is their starters played the least amount of minutes in the NBA. Their reserves, therefore their reserves, played the most amount of minutes of any reserve unit. The coach at the time, Dwayne Casey, he had built that culture up and then Nick Nurse took over for him uh, and won the world championship. But they, he had developed this culture where Kyle Lowry understands that in order to win a world championship, I'm not going to be able to play 40 minutes a game, uh, 48 minutes a game. I know I'm going to get hurt. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to have an off game. The referees are going to call fouls they shouldn't call. And I'm not going to be able to win a world championship on my own. I'm going to need DeLon Wright and Fred Van Vliet to be ready to play when I can't play. And so that means during the course of the year, I'm going to have to sit a little bit more than I would like to, but I'm going to need this. So it's like seeing the whole forest and not just your tree. It's playing chess and not checkers. You know, I need these guys. And so these bench guys got a lot of time. And there was this camaraderie that when coach takes me out, I'm not all ticked off. You know, when coach takes me out, I'm going to cheer for the guy that's in there. And there's a phrase, um, Pat Murphy is a great, great legendary softball coach at the University of Alabama. And, and he uses this phrase all the time. It's Mudita. Mudita. Uh, and, and it's essentially, it means being as happy for someone else's success as you are your own. And that's hard to find being a happy as happy for someone else's success as you are your own. And so I got to see with the Raptors, Hey, when I get taken out of a game, I'm not as ticked off as normal because we've built this culture that we need everybody and that my replacements are pretty good. Now I don't think they're as good as me, but they're still pretty good. And so you saw that carry over that even when Nick Nurse took over, now he was the assistant, so it was a little bit easier to carry on that culture. But even when he took over, and even when you brought in a Kawhi Leonard, who's a major piece that's different than what they had, they still had an overall culture of we're looking out for one another, and, and we're, we're all in this together, and we can't win. Kawhi Leonard can't win by himself. He still needs other guys around him. And they understood that. And so I got to see that. And so you talk about a George Pickens, you know, you talk about anybody else on a, on a, on a sports team, no matter what level, how much extra energy does it take to go fist bump or to clap or to high five somebody to show some, to show some enthusiasm for what just went on. Mudita, Mudita as happy for someone else's success as you are your own. It doesn't take a lot more energy to do that. And then that could actually be contagious because ultimately it should be a team sport. But then coming back to there's so many individual agendas and that's where a coach has to do a better job of noticing that stuff. But teammates have to do a better job of picking one another up and also providing examples for that. But if you're just typically sitting on the bench, just waiting for your turn to go in, you don't care what happens out there you really don't even care about the score, then that's going to permeate, not that game, but it might permeate and build habits through the course of 15, 20, 25 games. You know, you might not see it right away, but you're definitely going to see it down the road. And and definitely, I'm going to guess that most people 
my my philosophy is how you do anything is how you do everything for the most part habits how you do anything is how you do everything so my guess is you're probably doing that kind of stuff in practice too you're not caring good point um i i brought up cj stroud in the last podcast with greg coleman um and he's a guy i look at you know i i'm gonna sound like a broken record but um, look at any of his interviews, look at his post-game stuff. I mean, the guy talks and he talks like a natural leader and you're immediately drawn mm-hmm. to what he has to say. And there's a couple of times, I mean, he's had amazing games this year. He's an amazing talent. Um, but there's been a couple of times where reporters will ask him, you know, why were you so successful tonight? Or, hey, what did you think about your performance? And the first words out of his mouth are always about his teammates. Like, hey, the O-line blocked really well tonight. The receivers ran great routes. The coach, you know, drew up great plays. That's why we won tonight. And I think to your point, you know, it's it's that team environment of it's not just doesn't just take one person to succeed, especially in a game like like football, basketball, any of these sports. It's a team. It's a collective effort. So I love that you bring that up. Um, well, Jamie, we just had. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm originally from Michigan. Okay, mm-hmm. and so Michigan this year won the national championship in football, and I know. Uh, Michigan is kind of like Duke in basketball. You love them or you hate them. You know, they're very polarizing. And I know Jim Harbaugh as a coach is polarizing as well. Some people like him, some people don't. Uh, There's not many in-betweens with him. But if you actually watch their interviews, speaking of C.J. Stroud, if you watch the Michigan guys get interviewed, if you watch Jim Harbaugh get interviewed, now there's this whole YouTube reel or clips about – Jim Harbaugh avoiding interviews like he'll start an interview and then he'll bring a player in uh, to be interviewed and he'll leave. But and that's a silly thing. But if you really watch them, everybody that gets interviewed does what CJ Stroud does. They deflect in a good way to a teammate. Hey, I'm Blake Corum. I won the national championship MVP or most outstanding player. No, the first thing is the lineman created great holes for me. Hey, the coaches called a great game. The wide receivers did their job. The quarterback did their all these little things they 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 focus on their teammates and that's an overall culture thing. Whether you like them or don't like them, it's hard to argue that when you listen to all those guys get interviewed, they they put uh the spotlight on somebody else. Even Jim Harbaugh is the coach you know, he's always trying to point out the different players. Hey, you need to talk to this guy because this guy, man, in the third quarter, he was a beast for us. He had dog in him, you know, those kinds of things. Kind of like the old New England Patriots, you know, they have a, a Patriot way when they are interviewed. It's about the team, the team, the team type stuff. And and that's not easy to do, but that's an overall, that that doesn't, you don't just turn that on and off in an interview, you know, especially after a game where you're all jacked and excited you know, that's who you really are. And so that's what's going on every day is that, hey, in practice, when something happens, man, I'm going to make a point to catch people being good. Whether I'm a coach or I'm a player, I'm going to catch people being good. And I'm going to praise when you're do when you're doing things right. It's not about me. It's about us. We, us, ours. And, and that's not easy. And not every team has that attitude of we, us, ours. A lot of it is just me, mine, I, you know, what can I get out of it? I love you bringing up Jim Harbaugh, um, and he is polarizing, but let me tell you, I'm firmly on the side of loving Jim Harbaugh. Obviously, being a 49ers fan, he did a lot of good for our franchise, a lot of success, and he succeeded at every level. I mean, he succeeded in pretty much you know any team that he's taken over. If you go all the way back to Stanford, being with the 49ers, now with Michigan that you just brought up, you know, I'm hoping he gets an opportunity in the NFL again, because I think whatever franchise he 
you know, decides to to become the head coach of, I think they're going to they're gonna go on to do great things. Um, so I love you bringing up Harbaugh. Um, Jamie, I want to talk about role models real quick. Um, so it, it seems like the importance of having a role model is stressed to a lot of people early on. So growing up, you know, hey, try to look up to someone. For some people, it might be their father. For some people, it might be an athlete. Um, so there's definitely those who have looked up to, let's say, a LeBron James. You look at a lot of the younger NBA players coming in. They'll say, hey, LeBron was my role model. He kind of he was the guiding light in my career. That's why we're you know, that's why I'm, I'm here and I'm playing for this team. Um, but then you kind of look at the flip side and you take someone like a Greg Coleman, the first African-American punter in the NFL. There were no other African-American punters in the NFL, right? He had no other role model to look up to. Nobody that looked like him that was that was doing what he wanted to do. I recently read uh, Rich Paul's um, biography, kind of the same thing, right? He didn't really have a role model. He grew up in a tough environment like we were talking about earlier. He didn't have anyone to really look up to, to be that guiding light, to say, oh, here's another agent in the NBA that I can pick out and say, I want to be like this person. So it almost seems like there's this, you know, kind of push and pull between the importance of a role model and I'm wondering, we brought up a lot of examples of people who made it in a challenging environment, people who who weren't blessed with this amazing opportunity. And so I'm wondering, first of all, what's your opinion on role models? How do you think they play a role in, in all, of our, all of our lives? And, and how important is it that we do have role models? And then how do we kind of, I guess, scale this idea that even though, listen, you might be in a shitty environment now, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, and I'll I'll answer that in, in just a minute. But I, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago Pat Murphy at University of Alabama softball. Uh, you know, won tons of games. His whole culture is amazing. Okay, if, if you're a coach out there, I, I I highly recommend that you check out his program. Check out a podcast of his if you're a coach, if you're a leader, because uh, trust me, speaking to some of his former players all that kind of stuff. It's real. Like his culture is amazing. But the reason I bring him up again is because one of the things he talks about that he likes to do is, is he's got a great coaching clinic every day in the hallways there at Alabama. He can go to a volleyball practice. He can go to a football practice, obviously, you know, with the great Nick Saban there, but, but he can, he can go to all these different practices and he can walk down the hall and visit with these coaches and learn stuff not about softball but he can learn stuff about working with people relating with people uh how to maybe organize a practice not softball but just organize the general practice maybe how to handle discipline he can learn these things how to be successful as a leader as a person as a coach not the x's and o's of softball I thought that that's really telling because a lot of times we're like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm American, you know, I'm a football guy. I'm not going to watch this soccer stuff. Well, maybe you can learn from soccer in these two or three areas or whatever. So to bring that back to the role model, you mentioned the punter, you mentioned Rich Paul, you might not have somebody that apples to apples is a direct correlation. Hey, they are exactly where I want to be. And they took the exact road that I plan on taking. But what you can do is you can take apart from here and apart from there and apart from there. You might not know somebody that's ever made the NFL. You might not know someone that's ever been a CEO, owning a yacht, driving a BMW, doing it the right way, you know, in a Fortune 500 company. But you know 
a grandma who worked her tail off, you know, with eight kids in the house, two jobs. Okay. You know, somebody who had nice things and kept them nice. You know, a businessman down the street who owned a bakery and was successful. Even when Dunkin' Donuts came into town, they still kept their doors open. I I know I'm giving you a little silly examples, but maybe I know five or six people who have these traits I can look up to and I can say they've done it in these five or six areas. Can I combine these kinds of things to make me the best person I can be? And that will then help me get to where I want to be. So maybe I don't have someone that, you know, has the five tools, you know, that I need or the five qualities that I need, but I know five different people that have them and I can take bits and pieces of those, of those people. Just like Pat Murphy saying, hey, I'm going to learn from people that maybe aren't exactly apples to apples, like where I'm at right now, but I can learn from them. We can learn from all situations. We can learn from all people. We all have social media now. It's easier now than ever before to find examples of people doing it the right way. Um, Doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, If you come from nothing or you're, you're growing up in the mountains of Appalachia, you know, and you're surrounded by drugs and poverty. No, it's not going to be easy to pick yourself up by the bootstraps because there aren't people around me trying to make me better. There's just people around me trying to survive. And surviving is different than thriving. And I want to thrive. I want to make something better of myself. Well, there might be one or two people, you might have to look harder, but there might be one or two people that can provide us that example. Or there's one or two people that maybe haven't made it, had all kinds of potential. But if you just learn to listen and listen to learn, if you just take a few minutes, if you sit down with them, you might be able to see where it went wrong in their life and be able to, you know what, I'm not going to do that. You know, and I can think back and I won't go into it, but I can think back to a number of situations in my life where I saw someone else's failure and that actually motivated me more and educated me more than anybody telling me how to do it right. Uh, now, now it can go both ways, but I saw, all right, Nick's failure. I don't want to be like that. Or, Hey, Nick, what did you learn from this? Hey, what, what can I learn from your failure there? And so that's why you have people, you know, that have been in prison. That's why schools bring those people in or, or people that made terrible life choices. They bring them in, you know, maybe to scare the students, but they bring them in to give them life lessons, to learn from the past, to learn. So I don't have, you know, life is too short to make all the mistakes ourselves. So. Yeah, you say there there might be bad situations and somebody listening to this or watching this might be like, well, yeah, you know, you're sitting in an office behind a screen. You know, it's easy for you to say that, you know, or or you had two parents, you know, or or you're white or you grew up in this area or you did this. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. And it's like it might be easier. But you don't know my situation. You didn't walk in my shoes. And guess what? Life is not easy all the time. It's not rainbows and butterflies. I might have it easier than somebody else. That doesn't mean I have it easy. Um, and, and we get that. We conflate those two things sometimes. But there's plenty of examples of people either doing what you want to do or being successful coming from similar backgrounds or situations as you. Um, and so you can learn from those kinds of things. So I, I don't know if that's the greatest answer in the world. It's what I feel. Uh, and I know people will nitpick sometimes when, when I say stuff like that. And they'll be like, yeah, but. And I'm like, okay, I understand. It's not going to be easy, though. You know, and, and once again, to, to make a bad analogy or make it, you know, too simplistic, there's plenty of six footers 
that have been NBA all-stars and that are, that are NBA hall of famers. And there's plenty of seven footers that never get off the bench, you know? So there's plenty of people that take bad situations and make them better. And plenty of people that take great situations and squander it. Yeah. One thing that I'm reminded of while you were talking is, is the quote, pick your heart. And I think it applies to a lot of what you just said, which is, Hey, yeah, it might be hard to be successful or it might be hard to build a business or build a podcast, but guess what? Being broke is also hard and being unhappy is also hard. And so, <laughs> um, listen, uh, you know, there's plenty of philosophical stuff out there that life is just suffering and we're all, we're all just here to suffer, whatever your opinion may be. There's no <laughs> denying that life is hard and there's going to be a lot of obstacles, but pick your heart and, and stick with it. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's people, you can go, you can go on and on. I could go all day about this. You know, my podcast is success is a choice. So obviously I believe that choices are important, and, and, but there's, there's people out there that, that disagree with me on, on certain things, philosophical things like that, you know, uh, uh, you know, there, no, you know, life is too hard and, and we don't become better just because we go through these trials. The trials are maybe too hard and they beat us down. Uh, you can be great without having to go through trials, all this kind of stuff. There's different philosophical things. I also don't think it has to be on the extreme edges either. You know, sometimes, yeah, there's going to be people that are successful without going through tremendous trials. But then I also believe there's going to be a lot more, you know, pearls, you know, in this world, people that are successful, you get the pearls because they were in the oysters and the oysters get irritated with the little sand and it, and it gets the fluid and it makes a pretty pearl. I believe that there's going to be a lot more of that in life where the things, the struggles we go through are going to make us better or make us bitter. And that's how I was the first time, you know, I, I was a, a college basketball coach, head coach at the age of 27, you know, and, and at the time, you know, back in the day, back, back in uh, 2001, you know, that was pretty young being 27. That was young to be a, a college basketball head coach at the NCAA level. I was the youngest NCAA division three coach at the time. Well, four years later, they allowed me to take my talents elsewhere. You know, I got resigned and I remember calling a mentor of mine. Uh, he was the only division one coach that I knew that had been fired. So I called him up and I called him up because I want to know legal actions. What do I need to do right now? You know, they, they can't do this to me. It's not my fault. They didn't give me the resources. They didn't give me the enough time, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he said, Jamie, listen, right now, the only decision you have to make, the only thing that should matter to you right now is, are you going to be bitter or are you going to be better? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, you're not going to change your actions right now and you're not going to be happy, but right now you have to decide Am I going to take the bitter approach or the better approach? Because that's going to dictate what you do in the next couple hours. It's going to dictate what you do in the next couple of days, which is going to dictate how good or bad of a coach you are down the road, or even if you're in coaching. And what he said, I mean, he said it more eloquently than I just did probably, but that was some of the best advice that I had ever received from anybody because I took the approach, you know what? I do think I got screwed, but it doesn't matter. My athletes, the athletes that I coach five years from now, are they going to be better or worse because of the decision I make right now? And I decided, you know what? I might have got a raw deal and I could go through a list of reasons why I shouldn't have been fired. Uh, I had been coach of the year just a couple of years previous, uh, but we went through an AD search or an AD change, things like that. The AD brought in someone that he knew. Okay, so what? 
The fact of the matter was I did not do things I should have done as a coach or as a leader that that would lead to more success. I was not as good of a coach as I should have been. I had a lot of shortfalls as a young coach. I made tons of mistakes. I need to focus on those mistakes and how I can be better and better serve athletes in the future as opposed to trying to be a victim and trying to be bitter about what just happened to me. So what? Life happens all the time. Better people than me get fired. I mentioned Dwayne Casey earlier. Dwayne Casey's thinking NBA coach of the year and gets fired. You know, the only reason he gets fired is because he loses the LeBron James three years in a row in the playoffs. That's all. Um, and, and, and that guy, Dwayne Casey is a guy, if your audience doesn't know who he is or, or just sees him, you know, oh, well, he, he failed as a Detroit Pistons head coach recently. That dude has gone through a lot of stuff in his life and he's, he's pretty wise and mature about stuff. And, and he's very coachable. He is a great man to learn from, but he got fired as NBA coach of the year. So better people than me got fired. So are you going to be better or are you going to be bitter about things? And, and it's hard to be both, you know, it's hard to be thankful and grateful and mad at the world. And so I took the approach. I'm going to be better from this. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, but I'm better. I'm going to be better for this. Meaning I'm going to look at what I can control. And, and let's say there's 10 ways that I screwed up this team the last few years. Well, I'm going to do my best to try to be better at those 10 ways, as opposed to saying, here are the 10 ways they screwed me. And that's the easy, that's, that's the easy part. We all can look at, you know, how that referee just screwed us, how life has screwed us, how, how this boss didn't give us the promotion when we deserved it. Yeah, but we can't control that, but we can control the process. We can control what we do and then let the chips fall where they may. At a professional speaking event of yours, you uh, gave a story of two brothers. Can you explain what that story says and what it taught you about perspective? I think it's going to tie in everything you just said beautifully. Yeah, essentially, there, uh, there was a story of two brothers, and one was really successful, and one was not. And, and and if any of your audience has brothers, like I have a brother, we're very different in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Now, we've both been, you know, we both have a family. We're both business people. I mean, he's been a teacher forever and a coach. I was a coach. Now I own my own business. So successful in some ways, you know, but we're philosophically and the way we go about things are very, very different but we had the same parents, same environment. Well, there's a story of these two brothers. One is very successful and one is not successful at all. And this reporter wants to do a story on them, kind of thinking that, you know, he's going to find that something bad happened to the one brother that that moved him down the bad road and something great happened to the, the successful brother. You know, there was something externally that made them who they were. And so he goes to the uh, younger brother or the, the, the brother that is unsuccessful. You know, why do you and essentially why do you think that you ended up being on Skid Row or essentially being poor and, and you know, never being able to hold a job? He goes, because my dad was a low down, dirty, drunk, abused us verbally, never, never encouraged us, all that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense that you would be like you are. Then the reporter goes to the 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 successful brother. Hey, why do you think, what, what do you attribute all your success to? He goes, cause my dad was a low down, dirty, drunk, verbally abusing us, never encouraging us. And that made me better. That made me want to not be like him. That made me want to be the best that I could be so that I can make the world a little bit better. Two brothers, 
the same exact situation, but two different choices that they made. Um, we, we, we see that all the time. You know, we see that all the time. Two people in similar situations make different choices. Now, obviously, I can't guarantee 100% that if you make great choices all the time, you're going to be rich, you're going to have a great family, life's going to be rainbows and butterflies. I can't guarantee that, but I can guarantee 99.99999% of the time, if you let bad situations pull you down, you will not achieve the goals that you want. You will not be the person you want to be. You will not be that CEO. You will not get that promotion because you're either influencing situations and people or you're allowing situations and people to influence you. I tell that to my seven-year-old all the time when I drop them off at school. You're either influencing your friends or they're influencing you. Love it. And and I, I love that story of the two brothers. I remember watching it on YouTube for the first time and I was like, I have to ask him about this because it's it's a fantastic story. Um, and I think it teaches us a lot about perspective, uh, ties in you know with a lot of things that we've talked about here today. Jamie, um, I mentioned at the beginning, but you've written five books, uh, which I've personally not written a book, but I've heard other people talk about how difficult it is to write a book. Um, my personal favorite out of the five books that you've written uh, is Building Champions, Success Principles from A to Z. And so I figured maybe a, a cool thing for us to do is I pulled out some of my favorite parts out of that book. Uh, maybe we can go through it rapid fire and I'll just bring up some of the parts and have you react to it. So one of the first stories, one of the first principles that stuck out, we've said it numerous times on the podcast today, success mm -hmm. is a choice. Um, and one of the first stories that you bring up in the book is Alan Stein and his visit with Kobe Bryant. What was that visit and what did that story teach you? Yeah, Alan Stein, friend of mine, he, uh, a lot of people know him. He's a speaker, but he was, before he was kind of the motivational speaker for corporations, he was one of the highest level performance coaches for basketball players. Uh, he was involved with DeMatha High School with with the legendary coach Morgan Wooten, but he he's been friends with Kevin Durant, all these guys. He's he's trained them. Well, he had the opportunity a few years ago to work at Kobe Bryant's camp, and uh, Kobe Bryant was going to be doing a workout, you know, his own personal L.A. Laker workout. If I remember right, it was it was going to be a workout at. It was in the morning, definitely, and I might get the time slightly wrong, but but uh, Alan was like, "Hey, Kobe, can I can I come and watch you work out?" He's like, "Yeah, man, but it's it's going to be early." He's like, "That's fine," and uh, you know, Alan was like, "Well, what time?" He goes, "Well, my workout's at five o'clock or six o'clock. I, I forget what it was." Well, Alan got there just a couple minutes before the time that that Kobe said, and he gets there, and Kobe's already number one. Kobe's already sweating. He's like, wow, I thought, well, you know, well, evidently Kobe starts his, his warm up is pretty hard and Kobe might start his, his, his workout official workout at six, but man, at five o'clock or five fifteen, he's into his workout. Essentially, you know, his pre-workout is just as hard as most of our real workout. But the main point of this, the main point of this story was that Alan Stein notebook in hand. He's, he can't wait to learn from one of the greatest of all time. And Alan says he's completely bored during practice He or bored during that workout. Kobe's doing these drills that, that you know, you might see at a seventh grade skills camp. He's doing all these fundamental skills. He's doing 
just the most boring. Now he's going through it hard, but he's doing the most boring. And, and Alan's like, I'm not getting any real new drills from him. And so afterwards, he's like, Kobe, you know, man, why are you doing all these basic drills? You know, you're you're an NBA all-star. And Kobe says, why do you think I'm an NBA all-star? It's because I do these basic drills every single day. And I think there's a great lesson in there that we sometimes want the shiny thing. We sometimes, like even as a coach, we want the greatest play. You know, oh, I'm going to have this play with all this misdirection and and I'm going to prove how smart I am. Where sometimes, like in football, just stink and line it up, mano y mano, and cram it down their throat. Or just make simple plays so you don't confuse people. As an athlete, sometimes we want to do all these crazy drills. No, just be great at the basics. Um, you know, and, and going back to the Raptors stuff, DeMar DeRozan, his role model, you mentioned role models was Kobe. He absolutely loved Kobe. And you would watch a DeMar workout, a DeMar DeRozan workout. DeMar DeRozan would bore you to death because he's doing skill stuff. That's basic. And, you know, there's a reason DeMar DeRozan, I think, has stayed in the league as long as he has. And he has, and it, for those of you that have followed him or know something about him, he was a dude that absolutely couldn't shoot the three. And he's really improved his three ball, not like he's, you know, Steph Curry, but he's improved his three ball where he's a weapon. You have to guard him. But he has worked on his game and he's become an all-star. You know, he's he's had a lot longer career than maybe you would have thought he would have. And part of that is that Kobe Bryant effect of I'm going to work on the basics every single day so I can be the best player I can be. You know, we're talking about Kobe and I'm reminded of uh, Tim Grover, who, uh, for those unaware, uh, was, you know, Michael Jordan's personal trainer, Kobe's personal trainer. He's trained some of the best athletes in the world. Um, and he brought the point of if you want to be the best at something, there is no such thing as balance. You know, in today's society, we always like to say, mm -hmm live a balanced life, work-life balance. Um, that kind of hit me because it goes against everything, like I said, that we hear in today's society. So I'm curious your perspective on that. And if you are truly pursuing your goals, your dreams, trying to be the best at what you do, is there such a thing as balance? <laughs> um, I, I think that there's balance in situations uh, or there's, and what I mean by that is, let, let's say you want to have the traditional work-life balance, you know, let's say 50-50, which I don't know where we get that thought that everything has to be 50-50, but let's say it's a 50-50. Well, if you're a, an NBA player or you're a coach or whatever, I don't want you to be 50-50 in February. I don't want you to be 50-50 in March. I want you to be like 95-5. Now, in July, in August, in September, maybe you can be 10% NBA, 15% NBA and 85% family, you know, and then maybe that equals out to 50, 50 at the end of the year. But I think there's going to be different seasons of your life where you've got to devote and you've got to be committed to what it is you're doing. But in a similar vein, if you go on a cruise or you go on vacation to Disney world, you know, down in your neck of the woods there in Orlando with your family, then I think you need to be pretty much all in there. You need to be committed and devoted there as much as possible, you know, put the work to the side. So I, I do think I, I'm not, I'm not a big fan actually of the balance all year round. And now some professions lend itself to that. That's fine. But if we're talking athletics, I don't think in athletics, even at the high school level, you're going to have a 50, 50 balance for 12 months of the year. 
there's going to be times where you have to have that balance way out of whack. I think you're going to have alignment, you know, are these things aligned and you better have a family that, that believes in what you're doing, supports you in that kind of stuff. But no, you know, even now, you know, I, I don't want, you know, I was just up friends with the Milwaukee Bucks coaching staff just up at some of their practices. I don't want Damian Lillard coming in just for a two hour workout and then going home, going out on the town, going to the mall. That's not how you beat the Boston Celtics or the LA Lakers. I want Dame Lillard to be absolutely focused on being the best Dame Lillard he can be. You know, now in the off season, dude, if you don't want to pick up a ball, I, I am not of the belief that in the off season, you need to work as hard as, as some people believe. I, I, I do think you still need to improve and you don't want to get rusty. I'm not a believer that you need to be 12 months throughout the year. Um, now, I'm not a light switch guy either. I don't believe that you can just come in without having done anything in the off season. But I think you can taper it down. I don't think you need to go as as full bore as some coaches might believe. But man, during the season, I want Dame Lillard focus on being the best Dame Lillard he can be. Now, that might not be shooting you know, for 12 hours a day, it might be taking the ice baths. It might be watching film. It might be doing uh, some, some flexibility work, but I want him focused on how he can be the best version of himself so that he can help out the Milwaukee bucks, that kind of stuff. But yeah, the work-life balance throughout the course of 12 months, I don't think every month or every season of your life is going to look the same. You know, you bring up the off season um, and I just can't help but think about Nikola Jokic, which ha- I mean, he he is like the epitome of <laughs> during the off season. You know, he's not picking up a basketball. He's going to tend to his horses in Serbia. He's doing all this stuff. And he's one of the best players in the NBA, has won multiple MVPs. Um, it's it's just so funny. And I love seeing people react to some of the comments he makes. I, I remember when they won the championship, they asked him right after in the press conference, they're like, hey, are you going to make the parade? And he's like, he's like, oh, like, when's the parade? Because he was scared that he wasn't going to be able to get to his horses, you know, back in time. I mean, I love it. <laughs> well, you know, now there's there. You could also bring up some examples of people that take that same mentality and are out of the NBA in two or three years because exactly. they don't work yeah. on their game. Um, so so, you know, we can we can put these people up and, you know, you talked about role models. I could be like, well, Jokic does it. So I'm going to do that, too. But I'm going to bet that there's those times when Jokic does say, all right, I need to get focused right now. Or right. he probably puts more work in during the season than maybe I do. You know, I, oh, I'm going to tend to right. my horses too, or I'm going to have a great off season. But then what do I do with the hours that I'm actually, the work that I'm putting in the hours during the season? Am I, am I kind of as focused or am I, am I jacking around in the weight room? You know, I spend an hour in the weight room, but really only spend five minutes lifting. Or I'm out on the court for two hours working out with, with, you know, two ball boys or a trainer or whatever, but I'm really not getting many shots up or I'm not getting good shots up. Um, and I'm not saying you got to shoot, you know, 2000 shots in an hour, you know, you don't have to be rapid fire, but are you getting the good game shots that you need? And so my guess would be someone like Jokic is probably taking advantage of all the opportunities he has and he's, he's, he's making sure that he's doing the most with, with those opportunities uh, because he knows he has to cover up for take spending time with his horses, or he knows he has to work a little bit harder than, or this is go time. Right. Yeah. I don't think he was thinking about his horses during the finals. Uh, I would venture to guess that he was, uh, he was focused on the, on the Miami heat at the time. 
Um, Jamie, a couple more here. Um, I know you have to run, so we'll keep these short. Um, I have like 20 notes from your book, but I'll just do these two more. We might have to do a part two of this because I, I, I just love talking to you, man. Um, belief. You have a section of the book called Belief. You use Tom Brady as an example. What did Tom Brady's story and his journey teach you about belief and why did you decide to include it in the book? Well, Tom Brady, what most people don't realize is that he, he, when he was in ninth grade, his football team was 0 and 8. Like, think about that. Tom Brady wins all these championships, Super Bowl championships, and his ninth grade team is 0 and 8. Now it gets worse. He was the backup. He wasn't even the best quarterback on an 0 and 8 team as a ninth grader. Uh, he obviously got a little bit better, but even as a, a, a senior, he wasn't. You know, he was obviously good enough to be recruited by Michigan, but he wasn't good enough where he was the only quarterback being recruited by Michigan. They brought in a bunch of quarterbacks that year. So he was good enough to go to Michigan, not good enough to be the only guy. Well, it took him like two years to get on the field. When he gets on the field, his very first pass ever is a pick six. You know, so his career, it's crazy to think about how good he ended up being. Even his senior year. All right, Tom Brady, the GOAT. His senior year, he must have been amazing. No, they had a dude named Drew Henson who was supposed to be, you know, God's gift to everything. He ended up playing professional football or he, he was a quarterback for the Cowboys. And he was, I believe, a third baseman or a shortstop. He was an infielder for uh, the New York Yankees. Like he was the dude like everybody loved Drew Henson because he was this all around talent. Well, Drew Henson was a freshman during Tom Brady's senior year. And Tom Brady would start the game because he was a senior, but then Drew Henson would play the second quarter. And what they would do is at halftime, whichever player played their quarter better would then get to go in the second half. So for the first six games of the year, Tom Brady, his senior year, they rotated. He didn't even, he wasn't even the number one starter for the six, first six games of, of his senior year. Uh, and then, you know, he gets drafted. Everybody knows, or most people know, 199th pick, sixth round. And then he's playing behind Drew Bledsoe, and it, it took an injury by Drew Bledsoe for him to be the GOAT. So you got to believe in your abilities, but not just like the false belief that, you know, every parent has and every kid that sits on the bench, oh, if Coach, if coach gave me a chance, you know, you know, if Coach had put me in, we'd won state, you know, that kind of thing. It's not that false belief, but everybody does have to have belief with substance. And Tom Brady's a great example of that. He didn't quit. He didn't get bitter. He kept working at it. He used that as as motivational fuel, but he believed in his skills. And even though he had, you know, it's it's hard to say a guy like him had challenges, you know, because you look at him and it's like, yeah, I'm sure he had real tough challenges throughout his life. But speaking of football, he had challenges and, and he had to overcome those demons and those those voices on his shoulder. And so, yeah, I love the story of Tom Brady because the dude should not be the greatest of all time. He couldn't even get on the field as a ninth grader on a terrible team. As we wrap up here, last one from the book, Ideals. And you bring up the story of Pat Tillman. Uh, for those unaware, Pat Tillman was an amazing NFL player. Uh I believe he played for the Cardinals. He was due for a contract ex extension. 9-11 happens. He decides to go enlist in the army with his brother. Um, and you use his story um, in your in the ideals chapter of your book. Um, why is that? And why are ideals so important? Well, first of all, I, I love 
anybody that's willing to sacrifice any service member, any, any police officer, any fireman, like my dad, anybody that's willing to, to sacrifice potential harm or do something for other people. I'm always enthralled by that. And so I'm, I, I love the idea of just Pat Tillman in general being a service member. But the idea of him giving up millions, being a professional athlete, he was a pretty good professional athlete too. You know, he gives up all that to go serve in in the Afghan war. You know, the 9-11, the towers come down, the terrorists strike the U.S. And he's like, you know what? I, my patriotic duty, my, my American uh, beliefs is that I'm going to go serve our country. Uh, and, you know, you could say, well, maybe he was in a gentle and drunky junkie, you know, wanted all that. Yeah, all that. I'm sure all that's true, too. But he had ideals. He had conviction. He had something deeper than just, hey, this will be cool to go play army or go play soldier or, oh, think about think about how many women I'm going to get or think about, you know, oh, I'm going to be this cool macho guy. No, he was already the cool macho guy. He already had this in his life. And this could be an extension of that alpha ism. But not everybody chooses to do that. He chose to do that. He chose to give that up. I easily could have said, even though it's, I easily could have said Ted Williams, arguably the greatest hitter of all time, went and put his life on the line in World War II. You know, uh, Bob Feller, World War II. There's so many examples. Baseball literally shut down during World War II. And these Hall of Famers went into the war. Now, everybody was doing that then. Um, so that's not, obviously it's still a big deal, but everybody was doing it. Not everybody was doing it. Pat Tillman was pretty much the only one doing that, uh, giving up millions to go enlist into the army. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's a great story of, Hey, are you, are we doing things? We don't have to go put our life on the line, but are we doing things that, that back up what we say? And a lot of us, Oh, a lot of us live our lives. Like we're bumper stickers. You know, we live our lives like we're like we're 280 character tweets. You know, we we throw out these platitudes, we throw out these cliches, but we don't actually back it up. I mean, how many people literally do things that will cause them to lose money in the long run? Not many people, but people will say, oh, we should do this. We should do that. Uh, You know, we see this all the time in the media. We see this all the time, whether it's the news or the sports or our family life or whatever. We talk a good game, but, but our values and what we do aren't aligned. Uh, I'll leave you with this or, or wrap it up with this. But uh, I had a, a coach, one of my very first coaches used to always say, what you do is what you believe. Everything else is just talk. What you do is what you believe. Everything else is just talk. And I say that a lot with coaches because as coaches, we're really good at talking. But just in general, we're really good at talking. But are we actually doing what we believe? Pat Tillman went, I don't think Pat Tillman thought he was actually going to die. But he knew that that was a possibility. And he literally sacrificed not just his millions and his fame, but he sacrificed his life, you know, for people that he don't, doesn't even know. And, you know, uh, I, I don't, I, I won't go political in terms of, you know, R versus D or anything like that. But every Memorial Day, every Veterans Day, July 4th, those are great reminders. But every day we should be reminded that, you know what, I might hate this person because they vote differently or they believe differently or have different opinions on on a, on on some athletes who might take a stand for this or that. 
Like, I, I hate you because you don't agree with what I believe in. There are tens and tens and tens of thousands of people like Pat Tillman who gave their lives so that we can disagree. And they gave their lives for people that they disagree with. They get, we have people in the military right now. We have police officers right now that are putting their lives on the line every day to protect people that hate them. Now, if you think about that, like that's ideals. That's like, and, and I, I hate to end this with like kumbaya or going really deep, but sometimes we forget that we like, we just throw out these platitudes, but there's people out there living a life trying to make other people's lives better. So, so maybe you're an athlete and you have a coach that you don't like. They're still coaching a lot of times to try to provide an opportunity for you. They're sacrificing from their family. We have teachers, we have bosses, we don't like them, but they're still sometimes sacrificing to do things for the betterment. Now, we also have a lot of bosses out there that don't care about anybody, <laughs> but hey, go out. Let's try to find ways to be grateful for people. Let's, let's try to take a step back, maybe not be as hateful you know, uh, of that athlete, that coach, that person that voted differently than you. Let's try not, let's try to be a little bit more grateful of people. Let's try to be a little bit more kind. And, and, you know, Gandhi said, let's be the change we want to see in the world. I know that's kumbaya, but, but you know what, our community, our family, our school, our business could be a little bit better if we take the first step. Jamie, I think that's a fantastic reminder. And like you said, you know, a lot of us live life as a bumper sticker, right? And we tend to forget that perspective and forget some of those important um, things that other people have done for us. Like you said, I mean, people have died so that you and I could be on this podcast today. And I think it's important to remind ourselves, you know, at the very least, like you mentioned on those holidays where we, where we tend to celebrate, um, mm -hmm. you know, the men and women who died and sacrificed, but daily, just keeping that perspective, I think is, is extremely important. Um, Jamie, this has been amazing. We have to end this a certain way. Um, so okay. every episode, I try to do this. Um, so the previous guest will leave a piece of advice uh, for the next guest, and the and they don't know who it's going to be. They don't, you know, <laughs> I don't tell them ahead of time. So as I mentioned, Greg Coleman was our last guest, first African American punter in the NFL, and his advice for you, again, not knowing who you are, was keep God first and learn how to punt. And punt is an acronym. So the P stands for learn how to push through obstacles. The U stands for understand your strengths. The N stands for learn how to navigate through life. And the T stands for take calculated risks. So really quickly, what does that advice mean to you? And then if you would be uh, so gracious in leaving some advice for our next guest, who, as you may have guessed, I will not tell you who that person is. No, I appreciate, you know, he didn't know who I was, but, uh, or who I was going to be, but I appreciate him leaving that advice. I appreciate, you know, the example that he set and, 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 you know, being a trailblazer, you know, so that means a lot, him being a trailblazer in, in that, in, and doing something that, that not a lot of people have done or nobody's technically done. Um, you know, that's always tough. You're always going to run into more obstacles. So, so I think his advice comes from a place of, it's real. You know, we talk about the bumper sticker stuff or the Twitter stuff. You know, his advice is coming from a place that's real. Uh, he's lived that out. So, you know, anytime I can hear something like that from a guy like that, it's like, yeah, that's 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 deep. That's sincere. That's genuine. Absolutely. And then your piece of advice for our next guest. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't know who the next guest is, but I'm going to assume that they have some kind of a platform or there's some kind of a leader or there's some kind of influencer. 
And so one of the, the, the biggest, the, the kind of the two takeaways I would, I would say, or the two things I would want to remind them of is that your role as an influencer with someone with a platform as a leader is that you're making other people better. You're making situations better. Don't forget that. And one of the ways we forget that sometimes is we play the blame game. I know in sports, that's one of the best games we play is the blame game. It's not my fault. I'm a leader. I'm a coach. It's not my fault that Nick did this, but it is my responsibility. So as a leader, somebody that's an influencer, it's not your fault, but it is 100% your responsibility to find solutions, to move people forward, to make others better, to make situations better. So, you know, that's something I, I have to remind myself of daily. And even when I was a coach, remind myself of that. It, it, it's not about pointing fingers and finding out whose fault it is. It's about moving people forward and making things better. Beautiful. Jamie, as we wrap up, um, anything you'd like to plug, anything you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh no, just, just, you know, if you follow people on Twitter or if you, uh, read books, you know, uh, just whatever you do, be coachable, whatever you do, just thirst for trying to be better. Don't stay where you're at. You know, I, I really believe you're either getting better or getting worse. Now it might be getting worse slower, but you know, read books, or if you don't read books, listen to podcasts. If you don't listen to podcasts, watch some YouTube stuff, you know, don't always just watch cats playing. You know, don't always watch, you know, stupid people doing pranks, you know, watch some educational stuff so you can be better. So you have more in you so you can pour out. But uh, yeah, you don't have to follow me on Twitter or X. Um, but if you want to, it's at Coach Beckler. But you're not going to find out who I voted for. You're not going to find out my favorite team or what I like to eat. Uh, we try to uh, provide some positive stuff out there. Love it. And as a follower of yours, I mean, I have to give you a shout out. Love your content. Um, as someone who's read your books, again, fantastic, uh, fantastic work. We covered a little bit of just one of your books. You have four other ones that we didn't get a chance to go through, but um, all your links will be in the description. So if you guys are interested in what uh, Jamie has to say or reading any of his work, uh, all of that links, all those links will be in the description. Jamie, this has been uh, a fantastic experience for me. Uh, selfishly, I've learned a ton from you. Uh, and I can't thank you enough for your time today. Hey, I appreciate it, Nick. Th keep up the good work. I, I love your episodes and your interviews. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, until next time, Jamie. Thanks again.